<laughs> Zach. One time there was a man who had a dream. He was walking along the beach. While he was walking, scenes from his life flashed up in the sky. When the man looked behind him, he saw there were two sets of footprints. The man freaked out and said, "Oh no, I'm being followed." He looked all around him, but he couldn't find anyone. So he covered up his tracks and took off in this jack. No, he took off in his helicopter. No, wait, he turned into a hawk with rockets on his back and a guitar in his talons in his beak. Then he flew all the way across the ocean. The man landed on a totally different beach. Okay, the hawk turned back into a man. Anyway, so the man landed on a totally different beach, but when he looked behind him, he still saw the footprints. So the man fainted. The moral of the story is: no matter how far you run, grace is always one step away. Or it is impossible to make a hawk with rockets and a guitar in its beak any more awesome than it already is. Trust me. Trust me. Can't make it any more awesome than that. Father, we thank you that grace is always one step away. And often it's not the step behind us, it's the step in front of us. Or the step to the right or the step to the left. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us and that you are the hound of heaven that chases us to every foreign beach we find ourselves on. We thank you that you are the God that restores, the God that rebuilds, the God that revives. Father, I pray that as we continue in your word, as we look at an introduction to this amazing section of your word, the book of Nehemiah, that you would hide me in the cleft of the rock, and I thank you that that cleft is Jesus Christ. I pray that I would decrease so that you might increase. I pray that your spirit would be able to own my words, that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. We invite your spirit, and that's a big thing to do, to have your spirit have his way with us. So, Father, I pray that not only are our Bibles open, but our hearts, our eyes, and our ears. May burning coals touch my lips, Jesus. For I am unworthy, but you can make me worthy. In your Son's name, we pray. Who we love. Amen. Kathy and I were texting a little bit earlier this week about the music this morning, and she had asked me about the hymn, and I could not get out of my head that song that we sang. Um, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, bowed with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Ladies, let these words penetrate. This third verse 
apparently was written, added by one who was in an insane asylum. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Imagine, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We could just go home right now. We need not faint. Grace is one step away. The love of God is greater far than any tongue or pen can ever tell. But thankfully, in the pages of God's word, he gives us glimpses. He gives us stories. No, they're not stories, ladies. They are historical accounts of his goodness. In fact, I bristle when people talk about the Bible being stories. Because we've relegated that to children's books. This is a historical account of glimpses, pieces of that parchment that tell of the love of God. How rich and pure, how measureless and strong it is. Nehemiah, the book that we're going to enter into, is the story of his erring child that he reconciled. His great love. Nehemiah is the continuing story of Ezra. It comes right after Ezra in your Bible. It is the restoration of God's people after their Babylonian exile. And I'm going to give you a teeny bit of a history lesson. For those of you who love that stuff, you'll be all excited, and the rest of you are tempted to tune out. Don't tune out. History is nothing not for us to learn about, but to learn from. God doesn't want us to learn about it. He wants us to learn from it. And for us to get the richness of this book, we need to understand where God's people were because, ladies, we are right where they were. We are these people. So, again, Nehemiah continues the story that began in Ezra, and it's the restoration of God's people after being held in exile. The events between the uh, 6th and 5th century B.C., And they're best understood in the context of all of Israel's history or God's people. First, they were known as the Hebrews and then the Jews and then the Israelites. Or excuse me, the Hebrews, Israelites, and then the Jews. The story begins of God's people, the historical account, excuse me, in Genesis 12, when God calls out a man for himself by the name of Abraham. First, we have, you know, the, the creation of man, and we have Noah and the flood, and then the people repopulate the earth, and of course, they're wicked. God has to scatter them and confuse them with different languages. And he says, and he looks down with his heart and his love for his people, he says, I'm going to call a people out for myself, a holy possession, a treasure, And he calls a man by the name of Abram, who he later changes his name to Abraham, gives him a piece of his own name, God's own name, and changes his name from Abram to Abraham. He asks him to leave a country he knows and the gods he worshipped. And he says, follow me to a land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and all peoples will be blessed because of you. And Abraham obeys because he has a revelation from the God, the creator of the universe. Abraham trusts God, and he enters into a covenant relationship with God. It means he believes that, that this is the one true God. And it's credited to Abraham righteousness because he believed. So he believes God, and he enters into this covenant relationship with God, and he settles the land of promise. But his great-grandchildren are driven back to Egypt out of famine because there was a famine in the land. There they spent 400 years in bondage because Pharaoh was concerned. As the Hebrew population grew, he was threatened, and so he enslaved them. 
but God. One step. Grace is one step away. He raises up a man named Moses. And Moses had a stutter and was like the most unlikely guy you would pick, but that's what God does. And he picks Moses, and he delivers the people. He takes the people into the desert, but because of all that grumbling and complaining, and we want to go back to Egypt and following God and not following God, they get to wander, wander, wander for 40 years, but eventually they do go into the promised land. God's holy nation, his special treasure, is now in the place that he has called them to be. And unlike the nations around them, they didn't have a king. God was to be their king. He was to be their sovereign. But that wasn't good enough for them. They looked around at the other nations. They saw their big, tough kings, their attractive kings. And they said, God, we want a king. He says, you don't want a king. You don't know what that king is going to do. He's going to enslave you. He's going to abuse you. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You don't want a king. No, we want a king. Okay, as God often does, I'll give you what you want to your own demise. And, of course, they pick a king that they like, you know, one that's buff and and, uh, tough and good-looking to the rest of the crowd. And so they have Saul, who ends up being a spiritual schizophrenic. He can't ever decide whether he's going to truly worship God or not. But God raises up David. He handpicks David, a man after his own heart, who didn't look like Saul, but his heart was after God. And so God reestablishes his covenant through King David. And he writes many of the psalms that we've read, and you can see his, his story in, in Samuel and Kings. And so we've got David. David is a man who does follow God with his whole heart, but he has a son, Solomon, who only follows God with half of his heart. And Solomon has a son named Rehoboam who doesn't follow God with any of his heart. And so now the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are a mess. And his kingdom is divided into two parts. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There's a division now. The northern kings led their people to reject God and to worship all kinds of idols. They put on their jetpacks. They got into their helicopters and they said, I don't want you following me, God. We're going to go do our own thing. And they landed on other beaches only to find themselves taken away captive by the Assyrians. God had told them it was going to happen. God raised his prophets and said, return to me, repent. Come back to me. They would not listen. And so the Assyrians took them captive. Judah, the southern part of of God's people, the southern kingdom, they did better for a little while. They listened to the prophets God sent them. And so they'd have periods of repentance. And then they'd go back into sin. And they'd have periods of repentance and go back into sin. Eventually, they forsook their God. They jumped into their helicopters and turned into eagles, so they thought, and went to their beaches. Their hearts grew cold. During this time, Assyria had fallen to Babylon. Babylon had its heart set on, I want all these people. I don't want just Israel. I want Judah too. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian dictator at the time, takes over Judah, kills its leaders, and takes the best and the brightest into captivity to Babylon. And that's where we have Daniel, the book of Daniel. Now all of God's people are captive. It appears that the nation promised to Abraham only a thousand years earlier is destroyed, collapsed. No longer God's holy possession, no longer his treasure. They're now stranded on the beach of captivity. But grace, one step away. While in exile, God raised up prophets that foretold of Babylon's destruction and the restoring 
the rebuilding and the revival of God's people. That's where we get the books of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Cyrus becomes the king of Persia, who has taken over Babylon. He defeats Babylon, and he's used by God to restore God's people. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said to the people while they were in captivity. And you will recognize this passage of scripture that we quote all the time, but it will mean something else totally different to you in context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Isn't God faithful? And so it happens. Cyrus, king of Persia defeats Babylon and is used by God to restore God's people. Listen to the beginning of the book of Ezra, Ezra 1, 2 through 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God of who is in Jerusalem. It almost sounds like Cyrus wants to follow the one true God. He doesn't. He follows every single God, so he has his bases covered. He's just hoping if he can get every single God on his side, then somehow he'll succeed. So God used Cyrus, but we must not misunderstand and think that Cyrus is a true follower of Yahweh. Because God's love goes beyond the nearest star and reaches into the lowest of hell, He brings his remnant, he brings his people to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, that was pillaged by Nebuchadnezzar, and to rebuild his people. Enter Nehemiah. So we have two sections of of God's people going back, first with Zerubbabel and um, Joshua the priest. There's a one group that goes into Jerusalem. Now Ezra, another group goes in. Ezra brings the book of the law. There's, there's a bit of revival. They start building the temple. They get taunted. They have issues with the king. They stop. They rebuild. They stop. They rebuild. Does it sound like your life? <laughs> and so finally the temple is restored. And here we have Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer to the king who is now Xerxes or Artaxerxes. And he is concerned. He hears that the temple is rebuilt. He knows that the sacrifices are being offered again for the forgiveness of sin, and yet he's troubled. Why is he troubled? Because the wall is destroyed. Now, walls at that time protected the city. They not only protected it from invaders and looters and those who would harm God's people, but it also was a sign of dignity and honor. So to have the wall destroyed and the gates burned by fire not only left them vulnerable, but it also shamed them. And so he's distraught. He's concerned. He wants the people in safety and dignity. And so God uses Nehemiah, and we'll see in the weeks to come, to fully restore, rebuild, and revive his people, to finish the work begun. 
Nehemiah is considered a man of God and an incredible example of leadership. You can go to any leadership conference, especially within the church, and they're going to probably tear apart the book of Nehemiah and give you, you know, 16 steps to being an incredible leader. And I don't mean to discount that. I think there's really great things in here about leadership. I certainly need to study that. But I think it's way more. I think we miss something when we relate ourselves to Nehemiah. We are completely missing the reality that we're Israel. And that the book of Nehemiah is about God. It's not about Nehemiah. We're going to learn great things from Nehemiah. He will be an incredible role model to us. But we must never get caught up following a man, even a man written in Scripture. We're going to see who God is, the love of God that is deeper than anything we can imagine. Reaches to the greatest star and into the lowest of hell. And I don't know about you ladies, but as I've been pouring over Nehemiah, and you haven't poured over it yet, but hopefully you will, but as I've been pouring over Nehemiah, I am an Israelite. I'm not a Nehemiah. I am distant from my God. I am damaged just like the walls, and I need revival. I need the deep, deep love of God to restore me, to rebuild me, and to revive me. I am so thankful that His grace is just one step away. First of all, we see that or I saw, and I pray that you will see too by the, eyes of the, by the eyes of the Spirit, that you are distant. I am distant. Just like Israel, I am tremendously captivated by the culture around me. Just like they wanted a king like everybody else, I want to be like everybody else. I get completely caught up in this culture. And I forget that God is my king. And I forget to follow him because I want to follow somebody with flesh, somebody who's buff, somebody who seems to know what they're talking about, somebody who's cool and hip. And that is not what my God has for me. I am captivated by the ideas around me, the systems around me. I want to outrun God's footprints. I want to tell him to stop following me because I want to put on my jetpack and I'm going to go to another beach. I've strapped on my rockets. I think myself an eagle with a guitar and its talent. And again, my destination is another beach where I can either follow the systems of the world or just my own flesh. Some of these beaches, as I was praying about them, that I've seen in my own life, beaches of human love is probably the first beach that I would identify immediately. Looking to people to define me, looking to people to love me, looking to people to to satisfy me. My heart is restless. My soul is restless, just like yours is. And I was taught very little with Cinderella that Prince Charming was going to be the solution. And so from the time I was 14 till I got married, I don't think I was without a boyfriend for a month. I regret that greatly, and I am instilling that in my daughters. I pray that that's not their journey. I've got one that's almost 16, no boyfriend yet. Yes, Lord. What an idol human love is and romance. What a package of garbage our culture has sold us. Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart and imagination and therefore can excessively dominate our lives. Even people who completely avoid romantic love out of bitterness or fear are actually being controlled by its power. Oh, wow. There are so many women that I talk to who are distant from the God of the universe because of a man. Because either they chose to walk away from the God of the universe to marry a Saul instead of a David, Or they're afraid to get close to God because they're married to a man who's disobedient to the word. And they're afraid that if they get close to God, it'll ruin their marriage. Ladies, we're going to stand before God by ourselves, unmarried, if you are married. And let me tell you something. Getting close to God will not destroy your marriage. That is not how God works. Not typically. There are exceptions, but rarely. 
typically that gentle and quiet spirit, that trust in God, that growth, that personal overthrow, that selflessness that the Holy Spirit does in you actually is used for good. Typically, there are exceptions. But even when those exceptions happen, God is enough. God is enough. Beaches of romantic love. Beaches of entitlement. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Oh, my goodness. Ladies, if we got what we deserve, we'd all be wiped out right now. The fact that you got to breathe this morning, the fact that you have a car that you drove in or a friend that drove you, the fact that somebody smiled and shook your hand, the fact that you had breakfast if you had it or Starbucks. Ladies, what we deserve is hell every minute of every day. And yet we have this sense of entitlement that I should have an easy life or a happy life or a pretty life or this or that or friends or this or that. Ladies, no, let's get perspective. Those are beaches of entitlement. And they turn into beaches of anger and resentment because I didn't get. You know, Lord, I did all this, so you should do this. That's not how it works. Beaches of entitlement, anger, resentment. I have been on that beach. Another idol. The idol of comfort. Beaches of greed, pleasure, lust, success. Admiration, appreciation. Oh, lady, this has been my journey, this, this break. Some ministry issues happened in my life that brought me to a place of praying and asking the Lord if he was asking me to do something completely different. Was he asking me to stop teaching? Was he asking me to do a different kind of ministry? Was I know he's going to always want me to be about his kingdom, but maybe he's going to have me do something different. And I cannot tell you how that rocked me. I realized that even though I've forsaken the beach of romantic love, I mean, I've been married long enough to get that Jeff will never be my soulmate. I'm I'm done with that one, you know. And he says, praise God. (laughs) I've worked through the the anger and the resentment and the family issues that I know many of you have experienced and the, the unforgiveness in my heart towards parents. And God has rescued me from that beach. Greed, pleasure, lust, oh man, that's cyclical. You know, you get a little handle on that and it's right back up and you're staring at you in the face. But I was, I was surprised at how much ministry becomes an idol. I've seen it. I know it. But I didn't realize how it was in my heart. I was falling into the trap of being defined by what I do rather than whose I am. Timothy Keller, again in his book, says our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and our value on, we essentially deify. A sign that you have made achievement an idol is that it distorts your view of yourself. Ministry was beginning to distort my view of me. Oh, Father, forgive me. Just like Israel, I have been taken captive. Can you relate? Anybody on any of those beaches? <laughs> Come on. Everybody get your hand up. <laughs> so those few brave. We're all captivated. We all have an area in our lives in which we have been taken captive by the nations around us. As leaders, we did that same exercise that I had you do in your small groups, asking about where you are in your life, revive, rebuild, restore. And as leaders, most of us kind of went into the revival stage. You know, we're leaders, and we've been praying, and we've been letting God do a lot of work overthrowing us last semester. And yet, in our later meeting, as we talked about it further, I was amazed at how many leaders said, well, I thought it was revival, but God's exposing things, and I need some rebuilding. God's exposing things, and I'm a little distant. And we are going to see that. 
We want to hurry and be Nehemiahs. We want to hurry and be revival leaders. But as we really journey on this truth, we will see that we need to deal more deeply with our distance before we rebuild and before we revive. If we hurry to rebuilding, if we hurry to revival without dealing with our idols, without dealing with our things that have distanced us from God, we will have no revival or short revival, shallow revival at best. Sometimes we wonder why we feel close to the Lord and then one minute the next we're not. A lot of it's because we haven't dealt deeply with our distance. We haven't been honest. We haven't let the Spirit of God really reveal to us how very distant we are in at least an area. Secret sin, repetitive sin, anger, resentment, whatever it is, idols. Timothy Keller says, idols cannot simply be removed, they must be replaced. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back. But they can be supplanted. Oh, is this real or what? By what? By God himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in his existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. We need to be captivated by the Lord. That's what breaks the bonds of captivation. John Piper puts it this way, Treasuring the promises of God severs the roots of sin. Prizing the promises of God treasure, severs the roots of sin. Nehemiah, I love this. As we look at Nehemiah, we'll see such a man of prayer. But listen to his own admissions. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's house have committed against you. Here is this godly man, this godly leader, this holy burden. And we'll see throughout, he, he handles things beautifully, and yet he has sin to confess. If Nehemiah has things to confess, ladies, we have things to confess. I love what John Piper says, this prayer, Fight for us, O God, that we not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Those are those beaches, ladies. Worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. When we are on these other beaches, we are puttering around on the porch of eternity, not entering into the kingdom life he has called us and saved us for. And the good news is that grace is one step away, the beginning of restoration by the God whose love is greater than any tongue or pen can tell. So I don't know about you ladies, but I'm distant, but I'm also damaged. And a lot of it's because of my distance. Like the walls around the city, I have areas in my life that are torn down, places that are burned, things that are not as they should be. Listen to Nehemiah 1.3. They said to me, Nehemiah, this is a report he got back from Jerusalem, even after the temple was built. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. Hey, the temple's built. They're offering sacrifices. Why are they in trouble and disgrace? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. They're in trouble and they're in shame. I think some of the Bibles use the word derision, meaning they're being mocked. Areas of my life, ladies, are in ruin. 
And again, in part because of my distance that I've kept from God. And these areas of ruin are keeping me distant, too. There are places where I am exposed and I'm vulnerable to being taken captive once again. These are those idols of human love and anger and resentment, entitlement, greed, pleasure, lust. Again, this temple was built, the sacrifices were restored, but the people were still in trouble. They were offering sacrifices, but it was actions, because their heart was still a mess. When our lives are in rubble and our gates are burned, then when we offer sacrifices to God, when we show up at church, it's just an action. Our heart is not there. And Nehemiah is concerned with repairing the lives, that wall represents the lives. We're susceptible to taunts. When we, ha- when we allow these areas to stay broken in our lives, we're, recept- we're susceptible to taunts. Our own taunts at ourselves, not forgiving ourselves or throwing things in our face, and taunts of other people at us. We are in trouble I don't do a lot of counseling. I don't, I'm not able to because of my schedule. But when I do, um, usually women are not real excited about what they hear. You really don't want to come to me for counseling, let me tell you. In fact, Emmeline was praying this morning for me, my daughter. And she said, oh, Lord, um, she's 12. I just pray that you would give my mom the words the women want to hear. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I've already said something you didn't want to hear, I'm sure. I know I've said many things I don't want to hear. But when women come into to counseling, there are certainly rare, not rare, there are certainly exceptions, but many times they want to run to having a good relationship with the Lord, to offering sacrifices, to being at church, to being in a good relationship with God, but they don't want to deal with the distance and they don't want to deal with the damage. And oftentimes, one of the bigger issues is they need to repent. They've got unconfessed sin, areas in their life where their walls are broken and their gates are burned. Or they need to forgive somebody. They have unforgiveness in their heart. Those are usually the two biggest reasons we're in trouble. is unconfessed sin or unforgiveness. And we can't just hurry to that quick prayer of revival. That recommitment to Jesus until we've dealt with the distance and dealt with the damage. We have to take the time. We need a fresh encounter. Otherwise, the taunts will defeat us. Our weaknesses, our repetitive sins, our secrets will taunt us. They will put us in danger. They will create shame. They will prevent us from true worship. They will distract us. And if that's not enough, other people like to join in, too, don't they? <laughs> in Nehemiah 4.2, we see as the people are building the wall, the, the people, the, the non-Jews in the area are, are mocking them. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubble and burned ones at that? Ladies, when we... Take seriously areas of our life that are broken, that need healing. People will mock us. We will have trouble. Maybe they won't verbally do it, but you'll get resistance within your own heart and from the outside. And you know what? The taunts are right. You can't do it. 
the brokenness in your life you cannot take care of. You cannot revive the stones, humanly speaking. The people of the land were right in what they were saying to the Jews, but they didn't know about the grace of God that was one step away. A.W. Tozer says, Christianity takes for granted the absence of any self-help and offers a power which nothing less than the power of God. Those taunts say it's impossible, and they're right, humanly speaking, but God, whose love is deeper and reaches to the lowest of hell, the worst of burned gates. Nehemiah 2.20 says to these people, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He knows that the power of God, the grace of God, is one step away, and God is in the business of restoration, rebuilding, and reviving. I love that he says he will make us prosper. Ladies, you need the community of God. Here at Sister to Sister, we believe so strongly in small groups. We think it is so crucial that you come together and you take apart God's word together. You need each other. You need to see Christ in each other's lives. It will burn. It will fan the flame of your heart and your faith will be increased. David Platt in his book, Radical, says, Being a part of the community of faith involves being exposed to the life of Christ and others. In fact, there will be some things you'll be exposed to in your group you wish you didn't know about Jesus and how he works. But you will be better for it. There will be restoration. There will be rebuilding. And there will be revival. We get a better view of the whole idea of who God is, the whole counsel of his word when we come together. Grace is one step away, the beginning of rebuilding by a God whose love is greater than any tongue or pen can tell. So I'm distant, I'm damaged, and of course then I'm dry, right? If you're distant and you're damaged, how could you, be, how could you not be dry? Anybody dry? If you don't think you are now, you will by the time I finish this little section. Because <laughs> I just convinced you you were damaged and distant, didn't I? Sort of. I know I convinced myself. Like Israel, I'm tired continually, spiritually speaking. It's cyclical, isn't it? I, you know, I look at the recycling symbol that we used. You know, there's the distance, then there, that can create the damage, which then causes the dryness, but also the dryness then causes the damage, which causes the distance, doesn't it? It all interchanges, doesn't it? And the cycle has to stop. Distance plus damage has sucked me dry. And I shared with you earlier about this whole ministry issue. When I realized that teaching was becoming a way, something that was defining me, becoming a God in my life. I repented immediately. I realized it. I prayed. I cried out to God. And um, I spent actually a lot of time confessing with my husband as well. And yet, you know what? I didn't. I can honestly say, and I don't mean to, to minimize prayer, but I can honestly say it wasn't until I opened the Word of God that I felt revival. I opened the Word of God combined with prayer. Prayer has to be informed by the Word of God. And we see this beautifully in Nehemiah and why Ezra is so passionate about opening up the Word of God. It's great that you rebuilt the temple. It's great that you're finishing the wall. But open the Word. That's why my people are dry. That's why we're falling into idols. That's why we're putting on our jetpacks and shoving off to other beaches because we're not opening the Word of God. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and Holy Scriptures is a lost day for me. Every day you don't do your study, you don't open God's Word. It's a lost day. You might as well chalk it up to lost day. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm Word of God. We are so distracted, so distractible. We feed on so much all day that we don't even realize we're feeding on. We don't realize how dangerous it is. John Piper says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetites for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. Oh, God, give us a king like everyone else. It's not the X-rated video but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Oh, ladies. And pride comes before the fall. I mean, we don't do TV in our home, and that's just a personal thing. I'm not telling you not to do that. But we do more videos, movies, because I can kind of control that with the kids in my own heart. And I told my husband just a few days ago, no more movies I'm during the week. We're wasting so much time. Life is short. Hell is real. I don't want to be on the porch of eternity. There are so many good books to read. There's God's scripture, of course. There's relationships to be had. And again, I'm not trying to impose my conviction on you, but the reality is we all need to look at where we're spending our time because it's drying us out. And that creates damage, which then creates distance. And we find ourselves a mess. Nehemiah 8, 3b and 6. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What's so amazing you're going to see in this chapter is they spent a quarter of the day standing as one, listening to the law of the Lord. Okay, I think it's a big deal to give up a movie to be in God's word. They stood for a quarter of a day, and then they spent a quarter of the day repenting and worshiping. Okay, that's either three or six hours, depending on if you're looking at 24 hours or a 12-hour daytime. They were three to six hours standing, listening to the Word of God, and we whine when a message is long, like mine. I'm wrapping up. And then what I love is they spent the same amount of time afterwards repenting. And worshiping. The Israelites praised God for the grace that was one step away. The building of the temple, yes, but also the beginning of the revival that was brought to their hearts by the word of God. They praised God, knowing that this was only a shadow of what was to come. See, the law pointed them to a a promised redeemer, where they would no longer need to offer temple sacrifices to be restored to him where one would die to cleanse them and not just cover their sin. It was a shadow of what was to come, a Savior who would be the temple and the Word made flesh. Jesus called himself the temple because he would offer the final sacrifice for our sins. No longer do we go to a temple and spread the blood of a bull or a goat to cover our sin. Jesus laid out his arms. He stretched them on that cross. He bled and he died to cleanse your sin so that you could place your faith in him, that you could be restored to the God that you are distant from, that you could be rebuilt by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you could be revived by his Spirit. 
We have a deliverer. His footprints led him to a cross. That's the step that defines grace. He was given to me, to you, to bridge the distance from the love of God. To destroy the power of sin and its damage in our lives, the broken walls and the burnt gates. And he rose again and he gave us his spirit, living water, so we can continually be satisfied and not dry. The love of God, so deep, that it gave his son, his beloved one and only, to restore us, rebuild us, and revive us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. All things. Restore. Rebuild. Revive. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. And thank you, Jesus, it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. O Father, We praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. And yet, in so many ways, we don't. By your Spirit, Father, will you show us where we're distant? Will you show us where we're damaged? Will you show us where we're dry? that we might more fully experience your deep, deep love. You who did not spare your son will give us all things in him. You have the power to restore, to rebuild, and to revive. Do we want it? In Jesus' name.